Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Garfield, and this is Thursday, May 26th. Right before Memorial Day weekend, I can't believe we lost the month of May already, 2016. Tonight we have Charles Marshall returning to talk about the ever-widening implications of the California Supreme Court decision in Ivanova. The era of using void assignments, fabricated notes, and worthless powers of attorney is coming to a close. Just to set the stage, I want to make it clear that the many decisions around the country now are gradually exposing the underbelly of the largest economic crime in human history. For many people, it remains hard to believe. For most people, it is hard to understand. And that's the way the banks want it. And because of the difficulty with the understanding and the difficulty of accepting, this process has been excruciatingly slow. And while it is picking up some speed, I think it's important to note that the wheels of justice grind slowly and we are still in perhaps the sixth or seventh inning of a nine-inning game, and it may yet be years before the whole thing is completely exposed. The simple truth is that there is no creditor in many of these transactions. I know that sounds impossible, but impossible is what Wall Street counted on. If it were otherwise, the banks would gladly provide proof of the money trail and show that the REMIC trusts were funded, that they paid for the loans from trust accounts, and that they are the creditor. Instead, none of the foreclosures where we're dealing with the big banks and there are obviously several servicers involved and there are supposedly sales of the servicing rights or sales uh, of the note and mortgage, which never happened, um, they are predicated on the presumed existence of a transaction in which the loan was made by the party that is stated on the note and they're presumed to be predicated upon transactions in which 
the note and mortgage were acquired. None of those actual transactions occurred, and so the paperwork, which is evidence of those transactions, is worthless. Instead of having the actual transactions, as I was warned by an insider almost a decade ago, they're claiming the status of being something known as a holder. A holder is not a creditor to whom the money is owed. A holder is someone who has a relationship with the creditor and who has been given the power to enforce the note by the creditor. If the holder was the creditor, he'd say that, or it would say that, it was a holder in due course, which would mean it paid for it. And that, of course, would mean that the trust paid for, the Remick Trust paid for the loan, and that there's nothing else to discuss because a holder in due course takes free of the borrower's defenses in most instances. There's nothing illegal about claiming holder status. In fact, it's perfectly legal and appropriate in a marketplace that requires a free flow of these uh, financial instruments. Alleging you are a holder enables you to bring actions to enforce the note and foreclose on the mortgage or deed of trust. But the premise is that there is a creditor. And as I have said in a number of ways on this program and in my blog, there is no creditor. Not one that can be identified in the legal sense, although there is a group that we can vaguely identify. Hence the relationship between the alleged creditor and the self-proclaimed holder cannot exist. If you don't have a creditor proclaiming or in a self-serving document that you're the holder means nothing. But for purposes of pleading, not proof at trial, for purposes of pleading, saying you're a holder is enough. If you can't identify the creditor or won't identify the creditor, you should not be able to prove that you you are a holder. Your prima facie case fails. And so from a legal perspective, the agreement from the creditor that allows you to enforce the note is, actually, is in actuality absent. Absent the agreement, there are no rights to enforce. But the banks have succeeded in getting courts to res- presume the existence of the creditor and to presume that certain documents are real and facially valid, and therefore that shifts the burden of disproving the presumptions upon which the foreclosure relies. And what is happening is that the homeowner, who has no facts, um, is getting that burden and has to somehow rebut the presumption. So the homeowner cannot either prove or disprove the rebuttable presumption claimed by the so-called holder, and that's what the banks were counting on. And those facts are actually in the sole care, custody, and control of the party claiming to be the holder. So the problem here is a chicken and egg type of problem. How do you get to those facts? And the answer is in discovery. 
but that's proved difficult as well. The error, in my opinion, is that the courts deny the homeowner the right to discovery of those facts, or more importantly, the absence of those facts, even though the discovery rules should allow them to do so. But now the courts are definitely beginning to smell something fishy. And so the bar to homeowners who have been wrongfully foreclosed on the strength of a void assignment are no longer barred from making that allegation and getting the facts they need through discovery. How does a void assignment even come into existence? It's the same, actually, as most of the notes which were destroyed soon after they were signed. The void assignment merely reveals that the party executing the assignment didn't own the debt, was not a creditor, and had no rights at all over the note or mortgage. If you get somebody who has nothing and they give you a document that says, I'll give you everything I have, you still have nothing. The banks, up until the Ivanova decision, enjoyed the acquisition of free houses by simply fabricating assignments from either non-existent entities or from companies that had no more right to the note or mortgage than the average man on the street. The banks did this for each other. One lied and the other swore to it. It was a perfect scheme when you look back at it because they got away with it. They got away with this wholesale theft for more than a decade, and they're continuing to get away with it. In many cases, as a result of homeowners not challenging the foreclosure. And like rescission, judges are rebelling against the Ivanova decision, even though the California Supreme Court is their boss. They are under pressure from the banks finding ways to say that the assignment could be ratified and is therefore voidable and not void. There, uh, but that ratification would need to come from a creditor or someone duly authorized by the creditor who would therefore have to be identified, which is the one thing that none of them can do. They can't identify that creditor. And for there to be a creditor, you must find the person who actually gave the funds at the closing with the borrower and the transactions that took place afterwards in which someone paid some amount of money for the assignment. An assignment from somebody who neither loaned the money nor paid for the assignment is a document without any meaning. Such documents are meant to memorialize actual transactions, not fictitious ones. Any other view would cause chaos in the marketplace. If there was no such transaction, the assignment is still void, and that is what has opened the, uh, that's what the Villanova court has started to open the door, and we've had the Geiske decision in which Charles Marshall was involved and, uh, uh, and other decisions. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, 6345 spells my name, Neil, 
which is our new main number. We also have 954-495-9867. Pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. If this show and the blog I have been writing for almost a decade, that has value to you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. So, Charles Marshall is an attorney with offices in San Diego, with satellite offices in L.A., San Jose, and Lake Tahoe. He has clients throughout California. He's practiced in all federal California, all four federal California districts, with appeals pending um, uh, in the federal and state courts. One of which was recently decided for the for the decided benefit of the homeowner, and he handles all aspects of foreclosure-related cases, including uh, California plaintiffs' foreclosure lawsuits, defense lawsuits against homeowners from the usual suspects like Chase and Wells Fargo, and he does appeals, bankruptcy, and unlawful detainers. So, Charles, welcome back. Neil, great to be on again. So, we are, when we last talked about Bill and uh, Ivanova, every time I, I try to say Ivanova, I, I think of the school Villanova. I don't know why. Okay. So, anyway, uh, when we last talked, there was... Uh, just even over and the Kashgar decision, I think. Uh, now we have Geiske and Lundy and uh, a decision I saw today where the judge twisted himself into a pretzel trying to make the void assignment into a voidable assignment and therefore say that even over doesn't apply. What's your current read on the current status of where we are in foreclosure uh, uh, litigation, um, especially in California, where the Ivanova decision is law. Uh, It's very persuasive in most other jurisdictions now, and I think we're going to see a number of decisions like that. What's your impression of where we're at now? Uh, well, Neil, I think we're actually in the fifth inning, to go back to your baseball analogy, which, uh, you know, the radio listeners out there should, should, be, should be more hardened than they, might, than they might think from that analogy. Because actually this is a huge progress that's happened in the last few months. I mean, first we had Ivanova back in late February. Then Kashgar came down April 28th. And the reason in the California litigation environment that Kashgar is such a big deal is the uh, appellate court, well, it's actually the California Supreme Court, the California Supreme Court panel took great pains in their decision in Ivanova to let everyone know that, particularly the, the, the institutional defendants, by the way, they particularly wanted to to give them a kind of pat on the head and say, look, you guys, don't worry about this decision too much. 
it only applies to voided assignments where there's a fairly good predicate showing of voided assignments and only in a uh, post-auction sale environment. Well, it didn't take long for, uh, you know, a number of attorneys, and I, I like to put myself at the head of that list, who started eating away at Ivanova immediately. And so I actually brought uh, an opposition to what could have been a routine motion to dismiss uh, case, and that case is uh, Lundy versus Celine Finance. Now, that's a federal case, actually. It's with a northern district, and that's also where the Geiske decision came from, the northern district of California. So anyway, what happened with Lundy is that it was literally within a couple of weeks of Ivanova. I referenced not just Ivanova, but I told the uh, the judge in my opposition, Judge Tigger, by the way, and we might talk about him a little bit more during this radio show because he actually deserves a lot of credit for what's happened here. Uh, but in my opposition in Lundy, I made good reference to the Kashgar versus U.S. Bank case. Now, that was also with the California Supreme Court. The California Supreme Court actually stayed that decision pending Ivanova. So Ivanova comes down on February 18th. They start to go back to the Kashgar decision. They don't make a ruling right away, but I tell Judge Tigger in one of my oppositions, and again, this is federal court, you know, look, Judge Tigger, we've got Kashgar out there. That applies to pre-auction cases. I mean, I pretty much conceded you still needed an NOD because Ivanova was very clear you couldn't do test cases. You couldn't test the sufficiency or adequacy of a particular assignment situation, you know, unless you are already, quote, in foreclosure. Well, I think it's a ready-made argument to say if you get an NOD notice of default and you're subject to your property going to sale, that looks like a foreclosure. And Judge Tigger agreed with me. And he stayed that case for a bit, and it's now actually moving to trial on various causes of action. Uh, but the bottom line is that ruling, I think, then tied into the Kashgar decision of April 28th, where the Kashgar states, you know, again, we're going back to the California Supreme Court now. And in that decision, the California Supreme Court panel there, they simply, uh, you know, they remanded the case. Uh, that's what that's what the Kashgar. Oh, actually, let me correct myself there. The Kashgar California Supreme Court transferred the case back to the appellate court that was hearing that case, with clear instructions, you know, essentially to send the case back to remand back to the lower court to 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 go to trial. Basically, I mean, that's how this is going to play out in the real world. And remember, Kashgar was a pre-auction case. So from there, literally a few days later, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, in another case that I had had on appeal for some months, that's the Geisky case you were mentioning, they issued an OSC on May 2nd, so just days from Kashgar. They didn't even define reference OSC. OSC. I'm sorry, say that Can again? Define OSC for our audience? Oh, sure, Exactly. Yeah, for those of you in the radio audience who aren't familiar, it's an order to show cause. Now, these are always issued by a judge or a court. It's never one of the parties. It's always a judge or a court. And that order to show cause basically said to the defendant in the uh, 
and the Geisky case, it said, why shouldn't this case just be summarily remanded back to lower district court? And as a result of that decision, the defendants put in a response. I put in a response to their response. And on May 20th, uh, you know, I'm very heartened that it's my case that actually created this decision because I think this is going to turn out to be huge for borrowers, not just in California, but throughout the United States. So what the court ruled well, was, you're one of yeah, the few lawyers we're going to summarily demand this decision. You're, you're, you're one of the few lawyers who has consistently uh, run the ground game knowing that you were going to lose a, a number of cases, but also knowing that you were right and that if you kept at it, you were going to prevail in the overall sense and, of course, in some particular case. And that's one of the reasons why I've wanted to uh, have you on the show as often as, as we've done uh, because too many lawyers, uh, in my opinion, basically go the opposite of the way they should go, which is they take a look at the decisions and they say, well, then that must be the right answer. Well, if they had, for, for the thousands of lawyers, maybe tens of thousands, who had looked at uh, rescission and all the decisions made by federal judges and state judges and appellate courts and all that, it was obvious that it must be true that you had to file suit in order to uh, make the, the rescission effective. It was obvious to all of them that you had to tender some or show the ability to tender the, the money to the supposed bank. And my position was throughout all of those years uh, that that's not what the statute said. And the statute was clear on its face and that these judges were willy-nilly reading in common law into a specific statutory remedy. So at the end, all those lawyers who gave their clients the wrong advice about rescission found out how wrong they were in January of 2015. And I think what you've done here in Geisiki, it, 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 did I say that right? Is it Geisiki? Well, I've heard it pronounced Geisiki. I've heard it pronounced, you know, a couple of different ways, but I think Geisiki is a good uh, okay. phonetic well, that's way. My... It rolls okay. off the tongue. Okay, it's G-I-E-S-E-K-E. What you've done in, in, in Geisiki is pretty much the same thing. I mean, for the longest time... You've been saying, and I've been saying, and there are now uh, probably a couple hundred other lawyers that have been saying, how can this go forward when the assignment is void? How can, wh why is the homeowner not entitled to sue for wrongful foreclosure when it was done using a void assignment? 
And, of course, all of the decisions up until even over um, basically said you don't have standing to challenge whether or not that assignment is void, which is bizarre. I mean, you know, there are analogies in criminal law that are graphic that I won't go into, but it's just was bizarre for the courts to be saying, we know this isn't true, but as long as the assignment is valid on its face, we're going with it. That's the end of the story. Even Ova said not so fast, and then you uh, followed that up quickly with uh, with Geiske and showed that despite all the losses that you and other lawyers have had in California on that point, you were right. And by sticking with it, I think you made a major contribution to jurisprudence in, in California and perhaps a little motivation to the other lawyers in California who are uh, uh, taking these cases, and uh, a word of caution to those other lawyers who have been advising their clients that the law is and should be that use of these void assignments uh, is at best arguable and you're out of luck, Maybe they should be reconsidering the advice that they give. So I just figured I would throw in my two cents there. Um, but do you have any take on what I just said? Yeah, I appreciate you noting all that, Neil. I mean, essentially what I tell my clients is, look, this really is a war. And you mentioned the ground game aspect to that war. And it's absolutely critical. And, you know, unfortunately, with the difficulty of litigating in this area, you have to be prepared to take take cases on appeal and take cases to appeal. And I've gotten a lot of settlements that were worth taking, and I have taken those settlements. But where the defendants were unreasonable, which is quite a lot of the time, unfortunately, then some of those cases have ended up on appeal. And I've always, you know, kept faith with my clients and let them know that however crazy it might seem that things have gone on this long, the courts might finally come to their senses and come out with the right posture on these matters. And as you rightly analogize this whole situation, with rescission with Jezinowski in January 2015, remember that was a unanimous decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, now we have Ivanova. That was a unanimous opinion from the California Supreme Court. So it's it's kind of infuriating in a way. I know if I were in the position of a homeowner who was in the, the situations that bring to, bring them to me, I might be infuriated knowing that courts could get fundamentals so wrong for so long. On the other hand, it is being corrected. And yes, it has taken someone with my fortitude and intention to, to get some reversals here. And I'd, I am quite proud of that, and I'm going to continue to fight for homeowners, borrowers, and everybody who wants to vindicate their rights. Uh, this has been a long battle. It's, it is a war. It's going to continue. Uh, but this is a major progress and development for us. And 
you know, all these decisions since Ivanova, when you put them all together, what it means is we've covered the state courts, we've covered the federal courts. We've absolutely shown that uh, borrowers should be able to find standing to bring their actions and maintain their actions if they do a predicate showing of void assignments. Now, one one aspect to all this, Neil, and I can go into this now, um, if that's uh, suitable on your end, is to discuss, you know, the implications of all this. I mean, what, what is the litigation terrain going to yeah, look what like? I was, something I'm prepared to talk about. What I was going to ask you, which might be the same thing as what you were offering, <clears throat> now that Geiske has been remanded, it's back down in the trial court, what are your thoughts on your ability to prevail and what issues do you think will be the the active issues uh, in the trial court? Sure, I'd love to talk about that and where I think this is going to go. You know, and again, we're talking particularly in California, but, you know, as, as, as radio listeners all over the country go into your go into your uh, radio show to listen to what you have to say about all these issues. I mean, this is directly related to non-judicial foreclosure, but I do want to discuss today in your show as well how this might play out in judicial foreclosure states. But right now for non-judicial foreclosure states, not just California, where this is going to show up in non-judicial foreclosure cases where the plaintiff is the homeowner, the borrower, and even the former homeowner and the former borrower, uh, the way this will play out, I believe, is that demurs are going to be overruled. Motions to dismiss are going to be overruled. Remember, a demur is basically a motion to dismiss when filed in state court. A motion to dismiss called that and is that is what you see in federal court. And the reasonable lenders and servicers and sales trustees have put in these defenses all these years is it's an easy way out of the case. I mean, the pleadings aren't even joined. That's the legal term the courts use. And they just get out of the case, and that's it. Well, they're not going to have that type of free ride anymore, I don't believe. If there's one fundamental change that will happen from, from this, these major developments, it will be that motions to dismiss and demurs, I think, will now be routinely overruled. I mean, it's very important that the predicate pleadings and the predicate uh, chain of assignment issues are exposed, are alleged to be void, and that there's a fact uh, situation that's reasonably well-developed to tie into the causes of action. So all of that's going to be as important. In fact, it's probably going to be more important in the midterm and long-term. Um, but as these cases move forward, the demurs are overruled, the motions to dismiss are overruled. The defense is going to be filing motions for summary judgment, occasionally motions for judgment on the pleadings, and they're likely to lose, uh, I believe, at that juncture, too. And they're also going to be filing legal answers before filing their motions for summary judgment. Um, but, you know, this is something that we're going to have to deal with on our side. And we are going to get mixed judicial rulings. You know, it, it may seem perverse, um, but some judges, even though they'll they'll overrule on a demur or on a motion to dismiss. They might still grant the motion for summary judgment. on it. A lot of these judges really do think that our plaintiffs in the case of California bringing these cases, they, they call them deadbeats. 
Uh, they say they want a free house. You don't hear that as much anymore, but there are judges who still think that. And those are minds I'm going to continue to have to change. Uh, those are cases I'm going to continue to, to have to litigate, you know, in a really tough way to, to, to prevail and get them to move forward. Now, I, not, another development that I think is going to happen is that, and, you know, again, a lot of what I'm talking about is general litigation. So when you move through these cases, of course, you don't have to hire an attorney, but I think attorney specialization is going to be more, not less important now. Because as these cases head to trial, if the defendants can't get rid of them on motions for summary judgment, and even while those motions are pending, defendants will do a lot more discovery. They didn't have to do discovery before because they got a lot of these cases kicked out at the early stage with a demure motion to dismiss. Now a lot more of the defendants are going to be doing discovery, and that's that's tough stuff to deal with. It's very time-consuming. It takes a lot of legal specialization to come back to the proper response on those. Let me piggyback on that. Uh, First of all, uh, I I just want to say that uh, Charles' uh, contact information is on the post today on the blog, livinglies.wordpress.com, and on uh, this radio program description. He's at 415 Laurel Street in San Diego, and his number is 530-888-9600. And he can be reached at Charles at Marshall Law, I love that name, CA for California, dot com, MarshallLawCA.com. I interrupted myself with that, and now I forgot what I was going to say to you. Well, we were talking about discovery, Neil, and how that's going to be a much more frequently used tool on the part of defendants in these cases. Yes, I thank you. Um, the point that I th- think is really important is that we're just moving into the phase of real litigation. The people who um, have been involved in either trying to pursue foreclosures or defending against it, basically has been, um, as Charles said, a situation in which most of the cases they got rid of in motions. So there was never any real litigation. And the rest of the cases, they got blown out at trial because the judge refused basically to actually consider uh, the defenses and had previously denied discovery if it was even asked for. Now, in addition to the fact that the banks are going to be asking for discovery, it's critical that lawyers actually press for answers to their discovery and know what they're asking for. Now, I know that Charles has provided litigation support to other attorneys. I certainly do. There are are many of us throughout the country that can help the lawyers who are not used to really, you know, uh, uh, substantial litigation where there's a 
a ground battle in the courtroom, uh, they they can get help. And for the others that are true trial attorneys, um, then you don't need help from Charles or me in knowing what to do. My only statement is now you really need to do it because it will make a difference. Um, if you try to go to court, in my opinion, with some vague allegations, suspicions, uh, and some testimony uh, that doesn't quite prove that the assignment is void, which basically you should have proven before the trial through discovery, if you don't do that, then you don't have a void assignment, and Ivanova is not going to apply to your case. So that's what I wanted to piggyback on. And before we uh, uh, run too much further on time here, you said you wanted to talk a little bit about Judge Tigger, and I think this would be a good time since we only have seven minutes left. Well, let me just take one or two minutes to amplify what you just said regarding discovery because I, I think that is absolutely critical. Our side is going to have to do discovery for exactly the reason you just gave. You have to prove up your case. The only realistic way to do that is in discovery. And if the other side won't cooperate, which typically they won't, you bring motions to compel and you do other things to get everything into the record to either get the documentation or, as Jim Macklin, who I coordinate a lot of these cases with, likes to say, absence of evidence. And we can use that as a legal precept and, and create it as a legal finding where you can't get documents because they simply won't be provided. And there are legal inferences that can be dra drawn from that, including the legal inference that they don't have the assignments and they don't have the connections that they claim to have. In terms of Judge Tigger, yes, I mean, I appreciate your you're referencing the importance of, uh, you know, of how he handled Lundy. By the way, the Geisky decision is going back to him as well. So he, he may feel that that's a little odd that uh, he created this opening and now it's coming back. <laughs> but nevertheless, I give Judge Tigger a huge amount of credit. I think you have to always give credit where credit is due, wherever it lies. And the fact of the matter is he created a lot of the opening for this whole situation to happen. And I, I applaud him for that. What do you think is going to be the next move of the banks in relation to the problem of void assignment? Because and the reason I ask that, the void assignment is like a target. And when you release the arrow and it goes into the target, it sinks into the stuff behind the target. And what's behind the void assignment is the fact that there was no transaction at all. And if that becomes accepted in most courts or even many courts, the banks are going to be in serious trouble potentially even criminal trouble when it's discovered why there's nothing behind the assignment. And that is because the loan was never funded the way they said it was. So what do you think is going to be the next move 
in trying to wiggle out from the implications of even over? Are they going to be seeking to make the uh, to, to have the judge declare it voidable instead of void, or is there something else that's going on? Oh, I think there's a much bigger game in in, in the big ferment out there that's that's sort of overlaying and overlooking what's going on. I mean, that is to say, I think once we are able to establish, along with the arguments that we've been using all these years, that yes, these types of assignments are void, and then we get legal rulings, and then we get enough trial court judgments, whether it's either based on a judge ruling or a jury ruling, and then we can set up our own motions for summary judgment. I think even this type of litigating is going to take two to three years to play out. But if we are successful, we we just have to look at some of the principles of the universe, and, and some of those principles benefit us, some of, them, some of those don't. What's not going to benefit us is this. I see the lenders, and with their megatrillions, and they really do have megatrillions, they're going to go to the political system if they can't continue to thwart borrowers in the courts. So there are going to be attorneys like me. I think there are enough enough of us, not that many, but there's there's enough of us that are determined here in California and elsewhere. And I think that this decision and these the line of decisions are going to help in judicial foreclosure states too. You know, that would be a topic for another radio show. But for right now, we are going to get some big wins. It's going to take two to three years for these to really populate in significant numbers. And I believe at that point, possibly before, the lenders are going to go to the legislatures. And they're either going to do some kind of mega payoff to to limit or even eliminate their liability for all this, or they're going to manipulate the law in a more, you know, sort of fulsome way and use all of their their campaign contributions to simply change the law in some way where what should have been clear liability will then be either deflected or, you know, possibly completely finessed away. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I do know that they won't take this line down. If they start to lose routinely in the courts, they'll go to the legislatures to protect themselves. I am almost certain of that. My take on that, is that yes? I'm, I'm sure, well. They have been going to the legislatures, and they've been getting what they wanted. But um, and, and they no doubt will go to the legislatures. I agree with you completely. But I have a, a problem uh, seeing how the legislature can pass a new law that's going to apply to prior wrongful foreclosures. Uh, or pending uh, foreclosures. Uh, I think that's an ex post facto law. Um, I was, I'm, I'm mulling around, and we're running out of time here. Um, I'm mulling around what the next move in the courts is likely to be because they're certainly huddling and deciding exactly that as we speak. And uh, some of them are on this broadcast. I know which ones they are. Um uh, but uh, well, I guess enough said to that. I've got 20 seconds left here. Uh, Charles Marshall, thank you very much for coming on again. I think this has been a good show and very informative. Uh, people can listen to it again by going to Blog Talk Radio, and we will reconvene 
next week, same time. Thanks Thank for you, having Charles. Me on, Thank you. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.